I'm excited to be with you today to talk in this series that Mark started uh, many moons ago, well, several moons ago, uh, called Snapshots of Jesus. And we're going to be looking today at the Gospel of Luke. Now, when Mark uh, announced that he and his wife and family were going to be away for the month of September, he announced the lineup of people who were going to be speaking. I don't remember that. It was a few weeks ago. He said, well, there's, there's Pastor David. And he said, there's, there's Pastor Jarrett. And then Pastor Brent. Then he looked over at me sitting over there and he rolled his eyes and said, in capes. I, I sort of felt like this guy right here. Uh, you know, if I had a tie on, I would do this, right? Just don't get no respect, you know what I mean? So anyway, I, I'm not sure how I deserve that, but uh, at any rate, no, I'm excited to be with you today to share uh, a, a little bit about the gospel of Luke and specifically about the, a, a question, uh, the question of eschatology. Now, there's a lot of stuff in Luke about eschatology, but let me begin, first of all, by spending a moment with you to remind you that the gospel of Luke is is a lot about reversing the direction of the world as it was sort of careening into the abyss 2,000 years ago. The world was headed away in a particular way. And the Gospel of Luke tells the story about how Jesus in his teaching and in his work and in the things that he was doing was making the world right, fixing the world. Uh, in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, there's a section there where people were complaining, well, these men, these apostles are turning the world upside down. In fact, they were turning the world right side up from Luke's standpoint, for sure. So this theme of eschatology runs together in parallel with the idea that God is reversing the course of the world and fixing things, bringing justice and righteousness uh, in 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 new ways through through what Jesus was on about. So let me uh, let me begin first of all with defining eschatology. You've probably heard that word before. Maybe you've heard it in the context of a sermon or a Sunday school class. It's a pretty heavy-duty, theologically loaded word. And then we're going to look at some passages, just a couple, maybe three, passages from Luke that deal with eschatology. And some that deal with eschatology in a way that may be a bit surprising. And then some, in fact, that don't deal with eschatology much at all. Then we're going to draw some conclusions as we conclude, as we finish up today. Well, here's, let's begin with a definition of eschatology. Eschatology comes from two Greek words. I know you love Greek here. How many of you love Greek? All right, many of you do. All right, thank you for signing up for the class, by the way. You love Greek, you're going to sign up. Eschatology comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means last or final, okay? And then the word logos, which means word or reason or thinking, It means other things as well. But eschatology could be broadly defined as whenever we think about, there we go, final things, last things. Whenever we think about that, whenever we talk about that with other people, we're engaging in eschatology. Now, if you live long enough, there's probably going to come a time when you begin thinking about last things, right? Now, what I mean by that is, is I remember when Kathy and I moved up here about two years ago, we thought to ourselves, you know, this is the last house we're ever going to buy, right? I mean, from what we can tell, I mean, unless something happens, it's the last house. And, and maybe you come down to, to driving the last car you're ever going to drive. I'm driving today my, my dad's car. My dad died in about uh, 16, 17 months ago. He bought a car in 2005. It was a 2000. Uh, he always bought used cars. Told me never to buy a new car. I did. I, d- I didn't listen. But, but he, it's 2000 Ford uh, Crown Victoria. It's a big old car. People stopped me on the road and said, you want to sell that car? I got it for my brothers when my dad died, and I'm just driving it because it just reminds me of my dad. 
We kept trying to get him to sell it, you know, buy something new, buy something more fuel efficient. It's an eight barrel carburetor or 40 barrel car. I don't know. It's a big old engine. Just kidding. I think it's four barrel. But anyway, it's a big old engine. And it's, but it was the last car that he owned. He drove it for uh, 16 years, put 23,000 miles on it. He didn't need another car. But some of us are going to come now. We begin thinking about last things, you know. I talked to a man the other day in Great Britain. He was saying to me, he's, he's, he's a saint of a man. He said, you know, I plan on making one last trip to the United States. He'd reached that point in life and he realized, well, I, I can't keep doing this. Can't keep traveling the way I've been doing. Last, last, last. And of course, it gets more intimate, doesn't it, as we move along. A last conversation with a friend. A last meal that we have together. A last words that are spoken. Last. If you ever think about that stuff, you're thinking about eschatology. You didn't know it, maybe, but you did. Well, let me give you a more formal definition of it. Eschatology is a branch of theology that deals with final events, not only in the life of a person, but the final events in the life of the world, in the way the world goes, right? The history of humankind. So there's two different kinds of eschatology. One kind of eschatology is called individual eschatology. In other words, when you start thinking about death, when you start thinking about the afterlife, when you start thinking about the dying process and what's going to come after that, the future destinies, you're thinking about eschatology. Some of you think about that. Some of you wonder about that. Some of you read about that. Some of you get to passages in the Bible and you underscore those passages because they speak to you in a particular way. All of us are going to be at that point. And by the way, you don't have to be in your 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. You could be in your 30s. And face your last day. Or your 40s or your teens or your 20s. And then there's another kind of eschatology. Call it cosmic eschatology. Big picture stuff. Cosmic comes from the Greek word that means world. The same word that is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Tell my friends in Arkansas, the Bible doesn't say... For God so loved Tommy Joe Billy Ray Jean. That's a heck of a name, isn't it? No, it says God loved the world and gave his only begotten son. So the loving of the world is not just loving of human beings. It's the loving of all of creation, the creation that God made. When God said it was good, 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 indeed very good. Loving all of that. The grasses and the hills and the sky and the clouds. The animals, God's love extends to all that. Well, how does the world end? How does it all come down? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about some of that today. Well, everybody has an eschatology, by the way. Uh, if you talk to some people who are not believers in Christ or something, they might say, I believe the world is likely to end in some nuclear conflagration. We're moving toward a, a, a conflict among powerful nations, and we have enough to blow the whole world into oblivion. And there are people that think about that and believe that. I don't know that you can worry about it or do much about it, but that is an eschatology. That's the last thing. Now, there will be cockroaches after that. We all know that, right? <laughs> but after that, the rest of us, we're kind of all, we're all, we're all toast, right? Other people... Other people are predicting that by the year 2050, that because of climate change and a variety of other things, pollutants that go along. Now, we may not hold to that. We may not think that. But this is a legitimate way that people think about last things, final things, that life on this planet will become unbearable by the year 2050. Or it could be 2100 or tw whatever. No, 2100. That's not right. Uh, 2100, whatever. Could be that. And then, of course, there's Janet Seifert. Does anybody know what this is? It's a game called the Atari Space Invaders. 
There are people that believe that this world, I mean real intellectually driven people who believe that this world, in this world, we're going to experience other life forms from far off galaxies. They're going to come here, be much more powerful than we are. And of course, we as the human race will cease to exist. These are, by the way, some of the same people that believe that the way that life got here in the first place was because it was, in a sense, spawned by space aliens who came here. I don't happen to hold of that. I don't know about you. But there are people that think that and believe that. So uh, I love Space Invaders, by the way. That was such a fun game. You remember that game? That was so fun. You could never win. You know, you could, you, you, it was, you would never win that game. Well, um, there are some bad readings of eschatology. Let me give you one. Um, this is the Pennsylvania oil rush back in the 1880s. Uh, oil, I think, was found in Pennsylvania before in Texas. I'm not sure, but I, I think that was probably right. But there were ministers in Pennsylvania at the time who were opposed to the drilling of oil. And do you know why? Well, according to them, it was going to deplete all the oil stored in the earth that God was going to use to melt the earth one day. And it came about as a bad reading of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. And, and Well, 2 Peter 3, 10 and 12. Go back and read that passage. It's a hard passage to kind of get your head around. But that's, God could certainly melt the earth using something other than oil, right? And then there's the other, there's the other kind of bad reading of text. And one, one, there was a, there was, well, th- this is the passage that they, they keyed off of. Truly, I tell you, tax collectors and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. So there was actually in the 1600s, a sect of Anabaptists, by the way, Baptists are related to them, theologically. You may not think you are, but you are. We could talk about that on another topic. In Germany, they encouraged sexual promiscuity as the fastest way to get to heaven. Yeah, because what, what Jesus said. Uh, it's a bad reading of text. And then, of course, since the 1970s, there have been movie after movie after movie about the second coming of Christ, right? And all kinds of things in and associated with that. Well, let me, let me do, I'm going to sit down here at IPVO or ITVO or what is this? Does anybody know? I'm going to, I'm going to do some drawing. Is that okay? I want to draw for you, um, a particular way of thinking about history and final things. Now I'm going to call this, let's see, where am I going to go here? Okay. We're going to call this Jewish eschatology. That looks like a D, but that's a CH. Now, eschatology, again, means final things. Now, this is also a view of history. And because history is where God's activity is sort of worked out. Now, this is the view of the people that lived around Jesus, the people in the crowds where Jesus was speaking to, the people called the Pharisees, not the Sadducees so much, but uh, other groups as well. This is how they thought about history. Here's how they did. Here's how they thought about history. They thought about history as having a creation. And the Jews developed a particular view of history that we call linear view of history. History wasn't a series of cycles. It just kept coming around and coming around and coming around. History was headed somewhere. There was a telos. There was a goal. There was an end. And they said, and this is how they viewed history, that into the history, either God himself or the Messiah. Now, there are different texts. You can read different ways in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40 is clearly God that comes. In other places, it's the Messiah that comes. God comes into history and divides history into two so that history consists of two ages. One age, the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they call this the Age of Wrath. Paul called it the present evil age. That's the age we're living in. That's the way they thought about it. But when the Messiah comes, 
when God comes, it issues in a new world. Not the age of Aquarius, but what Jesus called and what others called as well the kingdom of God. The rabbis also called it Ha'olam Haba, the world to come. So they had different ways of referring to this. Now, I'm a teacher, professor, and I, I like to have a little feedback. If you think about this first age, the age of wrath, if you think about it playing out, what are some of the characteristics of this age? Now, these are deep issue questions. What are the things that threaten us the most as human beings? What are the things that cause us sleepless nights? What are the things that worry us and threaten us most deeply? Give me, give me some ideas. War. Huh. What's it good for? War. What else? Death. Somebody said starvation. Yeah, disease, plague. What else? Say it again. Turn away from God. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I want to I wanna, I wanna think more, more kind of the, the uh, existential threats that we have. War, death, starvation, disease, tyranny. Okay. And tyranny itself is just a manifestation of what? Evil. We could talk about crime. We could talk about all sorts of things like that. So these, these are the characteristics. How many of you would say, yes, war, death, starvation, disease, tyranny, evil are problems? Raise your hand. Of course. Well, when the kingdom of God comes, what is that going to look like? Instead of war, what are you going to get over here? Peace. Can you see this? Can I see this? I can see it. Just fine. Peace. What else? Instead of death, life. Instead of uh, 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 starvation and poverty, abundance. This pen's too fat. Instead of disease, what is it? Health. Zoom tight. Instead of evil, good. That's the age. Make it smaller. I don't know how to do it. I'm sorry. Does anybody make it smaller? Does that work? Martin never schooled me on this. Anyway, I should make it smaller. Let's see if I can. Uh... Oh, there's all kind of buttons over here. Let's see if I can zoom out. All right. You can, can't, you can teach a professor, but you can't teach him much. You can't. All right. So this is, this is, this is the view of history. This is how they view things. And so when they read their prophets, they said, you know, the prophets said there's coming a day when they're going to take their swords and shields and build and, and, and sort of turn them into plowshares and pruning forks, right? No war anymore. There's coming a day when a little boy will play outside the adder's den. Who's the adder? The adder is um, a snake, viper's venomous snake. And he won't fear in that day. There's coming a day when the lion lays down with the what? Lamb. Right? There's that day coming. What, what, the, what the Puritans call the peaceable kingdom. That's the world as it's supposed to be, the world as it will be when the Messiah comes. Now, what's the problem with this? What's the problem with this? Human nature is still there. 
Christians say what? Messiah has come. God has come in the flesh. But we still got that. We still got death. We still got starvation. We still got tyranny. We still got all of that. By the way, this is why Jews do not believe the Messiah has come. Because when the Messiah comes, the world will look like this. Peace and life and abundance and good and health. And not like this. It was a story about a number of, of students of a rabbi that came in one day. He was studying Torah at his desk. And, and he, as he was reading, they came in all excited. He said, a rabbi, a rabbi, the Messiah is here. And he didn't hardly even look up. And he went back to studying Torah. But, but, but rabbi, the Messiah is here. And so he got up from his desk, went out, looked out the window and saw boys fighting on the playground. He went back. To his study of the Torah and said, no, when the Messiah comes, those boys will not be fighting on the playground. Well, so there's, 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 there's a problem with this. But it's a problem that Jesus helps us solve. And Luke helps us solve. Well, it's basically the same. We've, we've got the flow of history. We've got creation here. We've got the coming of the Messiah or of God in the world. But Christians believe and hold to the idea of not just one coming of the, of the Messiah, a coming that ended in the cross and the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, but that in fact, Messiah comes yet again. We call that the parousia. So what happens to these two ages? What happens to the two ages? Does that change at all? Well, in fact, it does. And here's how it changes. The present evil age that has begun does not come to an end until the parousia. And the kingdom of God is initiated through Jesus and so we are living in this period of this overlap. Jesus described it one way. He said, uh, the kingdom of God is like a man that had a great field and he planted good seed in his field, but an enemy planted weeds. And the workers came back and said, uh, master, uh, why are all these weeds growing? He says, an enemy has done this. What should we do? Should we go out and pull up all the weeds? He said, no, because in pulling up all the weeds, you'll pull up all the weed as well and the crop will be lost. Let them grow side by side until the harvest, an image of the parousia. And when the harvest comes, we'll separate the wheat from the weeds. The wheat will be put in the barns and the weeds will be put over here and we'll just burn those. That's the kingdom of God. So according to the early Christians and according to Luke, we're living right now in this period of overlap where the kingdom of God is present, where, the, where, where, where good and truth and beauty and peace and abundance is present, and yet it is not complete. Does that make sense at all? It helps me to kind of frame it, to think a little bit about that. We're going to go back over here. I want to look at some passages together with you. How much time do we have? All right, 30. That may not be enough. Okay, that's all right. Y'all don't mind staying a little longer, do you? Okay. All right. Um, oh, well, that's beautiful. All right, here we go. Here's a passage, a, a very important passage, where Jesus is detailing the fact the kingdom of God is present. He says, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom is not some far off thing. The kingdom of God is moving in. The kingdom of God is present. This, this reality of the ages, the overlap of the ages has begun. And when I heal, well, wait a minute, let's go back over here. What does Jesus do? In the face of death, what kind of miracle does he do? 
resuscitates the dead, doesn't he? What does he do when people are hungry? He feeds them and there's basketfuls left over, right? What does he do in the face of disease? He brings health. And the other thing that we didn't put here, that we could have put here, is that this planet itself seems to at times be contrary to us. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis. And, and in the face of storms, what does Jesus do? He brings still. So all the miracles of Jesus are manifestations of the kingdom of God. They're not just Jesus doing good deeds for people. They are demonstrations of the fact the kingdom has come and what the kingdom looks like when the kingdom has come. Let's go back to this. So, what is the kingdom of God? Very quickly, Mark's talked about this. I'm not going to belabor that. You know it probably already. I define it very simply right out of the Lord's Prayer. It's the time and place in history when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So notice, it's about what, what did Jesus tell us pray? Pray for the kingdom to come. Pray for the will of God to be done on earth. So God cares about this place. This is the realm of redemption. This is the place where God began by taking on flesh to redeem the world. Another passage. Well, let's see. It's a present reality. It's here. It's here now. It was, it was there when Jesus did it, but it's also here now where Jesus is present as well. Take a look at another passage. This is a, a, a passage that some people read eschatologically, but I think it probably is best not read eschatologically. Take a look. at Somebody in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. Now, one of the things you need to know about rabbis is rabbis not only studied the law, but they were also called upon to adjudicate law. People brought law questions to them, Right? They brought in, now this guy's father had just recently died, apparently, and his brother, we don't know all the details, but clearly what this guy's asking Jesus to do is get involved in his inheritance. Now, inheritance is never really a problem for people, is it? Families go on just, uh, just, I mean, you know, people, just happens, right? It was then and now. So, uh. Tell my brother to divide my inher- the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me your judge and your arbiter? He wasn't a disciple of Jesus, apparently. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. Notice up here, he's talking to the man. Man, who made me your arbiter? But now he turns to the crowd. Those gathered there, and he has a lesson that comes out of this question and out of this man's desire to have stuff. He says to the man, take care. Be on your guard against covetousness for one's life. And here's the punchline. This is the punchline of this saying. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do we know that? But do we know that? Your life is not about having lots of stuff. It's hard to say that in America because we got more stuff than anybody. We really do. We have closets full of stuff. We have front lawns on the weekend full of stuff. Trying to sell for nothing or next to nothing just to get rid of it. Because we've got so much stuff. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, Jesus now tells a parable. Let's see if we can get that to work. All right, the word life there, by the way, is zoe. I'm going to make a deal about that a little bit later on. Um, Here's the parable. This is a story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And now notice what he says. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I'm going to tear down my barns, 
and will build larger barns. Notice this. I, I, my, I, my, my, my barns, my crops, my house, my land. Well, let me give the guy a little bit of credit here. He was, he was a rich man. Uh, he probably had, people in those days didn't have nuclear families, a mother and, and, and father and 1.7 children, right? Uh, they had large families. They had other family members li- living with them, aunts and uncles, maybe parents or grandparents. They had servants there. He was responsible for a lot of people. He was responsible for feeding a lot of people. So let's give him credit that he's thinking about not only himself probably, but also all of his responsibilities. I've got to take care of all these people. But he has an I problem, doesn't he? His pronouns were I, me, mine, mine. I will. Now, you know, he probably never erected a barn in his life. He probably never planted a field. He never brought in a harvest. But he was the rich man who owned it all. He probably got the land from inheritance. And so one of his sins here is thinking out of the body of this family that he was from. He was about I, me, my, instead of we and us. He didn't say, what shall we do? We have no place to put our crops. Because he's responsible for all these people. We'll do this. We'll tear down these, these small barns. We'll build bigger ones, etc. You, well, you know that part of the story. Jesus uh, turns the corner a little bit. And the man, still thinking to himself, said this. He said, to his soul, speaking to his soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years Sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Soul. But God, God said to him, fool, this night, in this translation, which I'm going to argue is a bad translation, your soul is required of you. Let's stop there for just a moment. I think that's a bad translation. And I think it, and I think my Greek students here can figure that out. I bet they can do it. I will say to my soul, soul, here's the word soul there, suke, by the way. Soul, you, you have ample goods. And God says your soul is required. Well, not exactly. It's not what he says. What he really says right here. Now, my Greek students, take a look at that ending. What kind of ending is that on a verb? That's a third person plural ending. They. They. Not your soul is required of you. The better translation is this. They are demanding that you give your soul back. They are demanding. Who's the they? This is what this word means. They are demanding your soul from you. Who's the they? It's a good question. Well, in, in, in reading any kind of text, you say, what's the context? Well, if you read the context, you go back and say, wait a minute. The land of a rich man, my crops, my barns, my bigger barns, my goods, my grain. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is sort of engaging in a little bit of anthropomorphizing here. All of this stuff that you think you own, it really doesn't work that way. You have, you have lost your soul in all of that stuff a long time ago. A long time ago, your soul became so identified with that land and those goods and those barns, you became a soulless person. And you think you're going to talk to your soul now and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. They are demanding your soul back. 
You don't have the rights over your own soul because you've already surrendered your soul to these goods, these possessions. What did Jesus say? A man's life does not consist, a person's life does not consist of the possessions. A friend of mine puts it this way. I don't know where I found this. If you're not very careful, you'll be possessed by your possessions. They will own you. You will not own them. I think that's what this parable is about. I don't think it's about the fact that this guy is going to die and he's going to leave all of his stuff to somebody else. I mean, that eventually happens. It happens for everybody. The problem for this man is that he thinks he can now, after having done all of this, that he can separate himself from all of that stuff and sit back and relax and have a grand old time. And God is saying, you're a fool. Because those things are going to demand your soul. And they demand it back. It takes pretty much a miracle to get it back once you've given it over. This is how passage. Here's the word psuche, by the way. They demand your soul. The word psuche means life. It means the, the earthly life. It means the inner life. The inner person. Yeah, it can mean, in certain cases, that part of us that transcends death. But that's not really what this parable is about. Because Jesus has told us what it's about already. Already, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. If somehow you have been caught up, bought up, co-opted, If you've surrendered your life over to those possessions, it's hard to get your life back. It's almost impossible. You may say, I want my life back. But it's very difficult. We've seen it. You've probably met people like that. They get to the end of life and their souls just seem withered. Or maybe they're in the middle of their life, in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And their soul, they just lost themselves. In the pursuit of goods and stuff. And Jesus is saying, no, listen, in this world where the kingdom of God is and where the kingdom of God is coming, it doesn't consist of all of that. It's not really what this life is all about. Well, we've got a lot more places to go. Um, This passage here. This is a passage that occurs later in the Gospels. I just wanted to show it to you in the Gospel of Luke. It said, as they heard all these things... He proceeded to tell a parable. This is the parable of the pounds, by the way, which we're not going to look at. But because he was near to Jerusalem, it seemed like the closer Jesus got to Jerusalem, the more messianic fever was in the air. That to the negative, not to the positive. There was the triumphal entry, which was a beautiful, I think, ordained kind of moment. But there were other people trying to press Jesus and push Jesus into directions that he didn't want to go because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Not just in part, but in full, in whole. And they were pushing Jesus, pushing Jesus, prodding Jesus, and Jesus resisted. So he told the parable of the pounds. If you remember the parable of the pounds, it's a parable about somebody that goes away on a journey And in going away from the journey, he comes back years later. And he asks his servants what they have done in the meantime with that which has been left behind and left in their deposit. And of course, that's an uneven kind of thing. We don't have time to look at that. But that's, Jesus was saying, no, the kingdom is come. The kingdom is here, but it's not full. It's not complete. And that's what exactly, it's present, yet it is also coming. It is already, but it's not yet. That's the kingdom. We're already living in the midst of the kingdom. Here's the final passage I think we might have time tonight to look at, or today, tonight. Tonight somewhere. So, said to his disciples, now, now we're coming down to the final things, to the end of history as we know it. This is what this passage is about, and yet there may be some surprises. He said to his disciples, the days are coming 
when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. He's talking to his disciples here. You're going to long to see that day, but you, in your lifetime, you're not going to see it. So it's not going to come immediately. It's not going to come, uh, you know, within just a few years of my death. It's going to be a while. So Jesus is preparing them for the fact that they're not going to see it. But, but there will be people that say, look, look here, look there. For the Messiah, and a lot of people claim to be the Messiah at this time, not just Jesus. Even though, in a sense, Jesus never sort of said, I am the Messiah. They came to believe that he was the Messiah, and he accepted that from them. But others claimed to be the Messiah, which proved to be false messiahs, and created all kinds of havoc within the community. So he said, wait, don't go after those people. When people say, here's the Messiah, there's the Messiah, don't go after them. There's going to be false prophets at the time going to be a part of the texture of the time it says for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other so will the coming of the son of man be but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation jesus is just preparing him for what's going to happen this is going to be and then he then he goes back to the Old Testament. As it was in the days of Noah, so it's going to be in the days of the Son of Man. Right prior to the coming of the Son of Man, he said, look, people were eating. They were drinking. They were getting married. They were being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. It was life as usual. Nothing unusual about that. People aren't hunkered down in a bomb shelter. No, they're just going through life, normal life, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That's how it's going to be, Jesus said. Only Noah and his family are going to be left. We sometimes get the idea that the New Testament is about Jesus and Jesus talking about the love of God and and love and and ponies and unicorns and just sweet, wonderful things. But in fact, when you read the New Testament and Jesus carefully, he does talk a lot about judgment, a coming judgment, a fearsome judgment, a terrible judgment. That is yet to come when the Son of Man arrives. Not for everybody, but for many. There are things that are evil that will be rendered null and void. There are diseases that will be eradicated. That's how it'll be. And then he, then he plies another story from the Old Testament. Book of, book of Genesis again. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were planting and they were building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, remember what happened? Fire and brimstone came down from heaven and destroyed them all. That's how it's going to be when the Son of Man is revealed. A time of judgment, fearsome, horrible, terrible judgment. The only, only Lot and a few members of his family survived that. The only ones left. And then Jesus turns the corner into the future. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. Grinding meal was the, the woman's job in that day. Two women grinding meal. One will be taken. The other will be left. So who's the one saved? The one taken. Be careful. The one taken? Or the one left? We think we know because we're reading this against some other maybe text. 
But in fact, when you read what Jesus has just said, it's going to be the same way as in the days of Noah. Only Noah and his family are left. Same way in, in the time of Lot. Only, only Lot and a few of his family members are left. I want to suggest to you that maybe we've been reading this passage upside down. If this truly is where God is redeeming the world, then this world will be returned to its very good condition. And it'll be returned to its very good condition, not so that it'll be uninhabited, but so that it'll be inhabited. And that's what the gospel, well, the, the, the book of Revelation calls the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. I want to suggest to you that The one taken, those taken, are those taken into judgment. And those left are those left for the beauty and the the power of the gospel as it's revealed here in the world of peace and life and abundance and health and good and still, still. I might be wrong about that. Others may be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. And that's because I've been reading the Old Testament. And I see how these kinds of things work themselves out. Notice the question the disciples asked next. They said to him, where, Lord? Where are they taken? Where are they taken? And Jesus paints one of the most disturbing pictures he ever paints. He says, where the corpse is. There the vultures will gather. For a Jew, that was about as horrible an ending that you could come to. Because the proper way after death is to be buried in the earth, not to be lying on the ground in vultures making a meal out of you. That was about as horrific as it could be imagined. Jesus, sweet and mild, well... When the Son of Man comes, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be hard judgment. It's going to be a day, as he said, you would never want to see. So finally, I think we're about out of time. Just a few final thoughts. A lot of more passages about eschatology. A lot more passages. But let's begin with this. This world that God has made is the world that God is redeeming. This is the world. As rotten as it may seem, as bad as it may seem, this is the world where in, in the body of Jesus, he took on a piece of the earth. In the body of Jesus, the body of Jesus, like every Adam, like every Eve, is made up of the earth. The things that we eat, the things that we drink, they become us. And when, when, when Jesus took on a body, he took on a body of this world to redeem it, to change it. So the scope of redemption is this world. The scope of the redemption is this world. What we find from reading, the kingdom of God has come, right? God so loved the world that he gave. It's the first thing. Second thing is life is not just about stuff. Some of us get caught up in that. It's easy to do. Our whole economy, our whole advertising, our whole psychology is built to try to convince you that you need this. You must have that. There's more for your life here with all this stuff. And it's easy to get co-opted by that so that what you possess now possesses you. And you lose your soul. You lose the potential that you had as a human being by being so co-opted in the midst of it all. It's a danger point. Remember, Jesus said, for a man's life, a person's life, a woman's life does not consist of their possessions. 
There's more, much more. And finally, the kingdom is here. (laughs) I mean, it's already here. Yeah, yeah, there's more to come. There is a great judgment to come. There's a great assize to come. There is a great sorting to come. There, There are the sheeps on the one hand and there are the goats on the other hand. There's a a harvest to come. The weeds over here, the wheat over here. There's a great harvest to come. You you come to the net after fishing and you've got flotsam and jetsam and all sorts of stuff over there. And then you got the good tasting fish over here that goes to market. But your nets pull up all sorts of things. Jesus said that's the way the kingdom is. Like a net behind a boat pulling it all in. And it pulls in a lot of bad stuff along with a lot of good stuff. And you got to sort it out. And God's going to sort it out. There's a sorting coming. It's not going to be a sorting done by us, human beings, with our lack of justice and our lack of knowledge of justice and our biases. But a judgment is coming from the one who is truly just, the one who is truly holy, the one who is truly ready for the end to come. Now, when you think about the end, think about Luke. In fact, the end of this world is not really the the end of the world. It's the redemption of the world. It's the changing of the world. It's the turning the world upside down or right side up. That's what God is about through Christ, through his church, through his people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these men and women, these boys and girls. I pray for any whose souls have been co-opted and surrendered over to stuff. May they find a way to liberate themselves from that. Pray for those that are on the wrong side now of your justice. Pray that they will find a way into your hope and into your kingdom. Grant us peace as we think about the end. Our own ends, our own last days, last things, but also the last days of this world. Grant us peace to be those who speak the truth and those who know the truth and those who will stand for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.